een Maker District podcast. Queer Consent features discussion of sexual violence throughout. If you've experienced sexual violence, visit Centrum Sexuelgeveld or menaswell.nl for more information. When I first started with Men As Well, I wasn't exactly public about my experience. I was creating content and sharing other people's stories and making a discussion about sexual violence, but I wasn't public about what had happened to me. When I finally shared my story, it was in a newspaper, and I kind of expected that there would be a big shift or a change, but it didn't really happen. What did happen, though, was that I realized that I was able to talk about it for the first time. And that changed everything for me. So in this episode, I want to discuss the importance of taking back your power and sharing your story. This is Queer Consent. Welcome to the second episode of Queer Consent. I'm Thomas Garrett Puller, and I'm your host for these six episodes as we take a journey through an important period of my life. From my experience of rape to the launching and building of the Men As Well Foundation, the Dutch organization for male and queer survivors of sexual assault. We'll take a look at where we are now with consent and what needs to be done to achieve a safe LGBTQIA community. Along the way, I've met some truly inspiring people that have contributed to raising awareness of violence within the community. Each episode, I'm accompanied with a few of them as we journey through important topics together. Within the Netherlands and further afield, discussion of consent in the community is just getting started. According to the Belgian Science Policy Office, 80% of LGBTQIA plus experience sexual violence in their lifetime. And according to Survivors UK, it takes on average 20 years for male victims to disclose their experience of sexual assault. In this episode, we'll talk about sharing your story and breaking your silence after experiencing sexual violence. With me are Tessel Tenswegen and Jeffrey Drell. Tessel Tenswegen is a feminist journalist and author with a focus on gender-based violence against bisexual women and online activism. Her documentary series Tessel in Cyberspace aired in September and her new book Femicide was launched in November this year. Jeffrey Drell is the author of Liege Zulje, Lie Will You, his memoir launched in September in which he recounts the abuse and grooming he experienced at the age of 16 by an older couple. Tessel and Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really happy to have you and really looking forward to this discussion. It's a very important one. Um, Tessel, you have written extensively about your experience of both interpartner violence and uh, gender-based violence as a bisexual woman. How did your personal experiences shape uh, your journey and how did they uh, lead to the accomplishments that you've reached? Oh, good question. Um, I think that something that really struck me is that I thought my experiences were unique. I think a lot of victims experience this. They think that um, they are maybe like weak for allowing something like that to happen Um or they think that uh, nobody else would ever, um, you know, not stand up for themselves in those kinds of situations. And then through research and talking about it with other victims, I found that um, I was not alone in this ex- experience, but also not alone in the shame about this experience. And that's why I wanted to write a book about it, because I feel like there's nothing as powerful as, you know, getting rid of shame by openly and publicly claiming what happened to you. So that's why I wrote um, my first book, 
dat zij nooit toelaten. En ja, de comments I received were amazing. Like people felt freed by, you know, reading that those experiences aren't unique and are actually quite common. Like that's obviously depressing, but it's also liberating to, to know that you're not alone. And Jeffrey, you covered your experience of grooming uh, as a young man. How do you? How did you find the responses from your sharing of your story? Very similar, I think, to Tessels. Many people reached out, uh, telling me that they experienced the same thing. Of course, in their own manner. Nobody has the same story, but there are things that are, uh, yeah, very common. Um, I I found it very interesting to also uh, receive. A lot of messages from like uh, older people. I expected comments from teenagers because my book is a young adult, but also um, like people from 70 were emailing me and really telling me that they yeah that they had similar experiences that they carried with them for like many years, and um, that to me was uh, yeah it was really eye opening. I remember when I was young that I didn't want that to happen to me. I didn't want to grow old like 50 uh, and always kept that secret for myself. Um, that's also why, like at an early age, I already started to yeah, open up about it. Uh, but yeah, the <laughs> you're asking me about the comments; they were amazing. Uh, it felt super deliberating, uh, liberating, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm so thankful for that because it makes you feel like you're not alone. Can you describe a little bit the journey that you went on to be able to begin talking about what you experienced? Uh, I can explain you. Like, um, I I became super depressed. I was 16 when it happened. It uh, it happened for a year. And when it ended, I just didn't really understand it. Um, and that took me almost six years to really, uh, you know, like daily think about this. And like lay, uh, I laid in my bed almost daily and, and I was just always like, I couldn't wrap my head around around the questions that I, uh, that I carried. Like, was it true love? Or was this just a wicked uh, way of like loving other people? Uh, is it even possible to fall in love with two guys? And did they even love me because of the things that they did to me? Because they told you, I remember yeah, reading they that they me, yeah. that they loved you and that you were shocked about this when you yeah. when they sent you a text message telling you the story is in the book, of course. Yeah, uh, and when I talk, it just I assume that everybody already knows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, they 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 sent me a text message uh, after we became friends uh, from my um, my sports background. And yeah, I just thought we were building a friendship there. Turned out that they were grooming me, but I only found out like years later because I didn't understand the pattern and I didn't understand the situation. There was no representation in a book or a movie. I never saw it. So um, then when I was uh, around the age of 20 or 21, um, something in a newspaper really opened my eyes. And then I just, I couldn't hold back any longer. I, I knew things were wrong. I still didn't know it was abuse, but I knew that it wasn't love and it was something that was bad. They did bad things to me. Um, and they also made me lie about things I didn't want to lie about. They, they kind of like twisted my life to their needs. And um, then I told my parents. And when that happened, um, my, my parents, they, they were shocked. Of course, you, you, it's like you live in a bubble and they wanted to raise me and my sister in a safe environment. And all of a sudden, that bubble was bursted open. And yeah, the world just <laughs> exploded. Long story short, I couldn't really live with the feelings. Uh, as soon as I knew it was abuse, 
the feelings got worse. And at one point, I really had to talk to a professional. So I did that. And she gave me the advice to write one letter, one letter, just one letter to not even send to the abusers, but just to, for me to, you know, like put the emotions on paper and try to understand it. I did that. And it was the beginning of like my wall in my my bedroom. It just was full of paper, like full of uh, memories, full of emotions, full of things I wanted to, you know, like get out of my head. And at one point I understood that if I put all of that together, um, it would write, like it would show the story from the front from the start to the end. And um by doing that I could maybe help somebody else. Uh yeah. And that's when I started the journey for seven years. <laughs> and now the book is there. Amazing. <laughs> Sorry, that was a long answer, but <laughs> no, no, it's cool. Very it's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> You've both actually touched really quickly on shame uh as something that needs to be overcome. I'm just wondering how does that if that does look different between bisexual a bisexual woman and a and a gay man? Um, and yeah, I'm just wondering whether what it what it looks like. Well, for bisexual women, I know that um, well, obviously there's two uh, or three um, possible perpetrators. Uh, when it's the perpetrator is lesbian or or non-binary, then there's the the topic or the issue of in community conflict. And what is difficult about this is that bisexual women. I, I guess such as uh, lesbian women and gay men, anyone in the queer community, feel some kind of obligation to portray our community in in a positive daylight because we face so much stigma. Um, so that makes it difficult for for us to um, point fingers, right? To, uh, for example, a lesbian woman, especially because bisexual women and lesbian women, there is such a <laughs> camaraderie of some sorts or something. Mm-hmm. So that feels very tricky. Um, and for me, uh, which also played into my shame was maybe not really being okay with my bisexuality, um, in itself. Um, I mean, I was out and I had a lot of bisexual friends around me when I was, um, abused by a male partner, but, um, he would really play into these, uh, bisexual stereotypes. So there's, um kind of like cultural representations of bisexual women, especially as overly promiscuous, as hypersexual, um, as uh, someone who will always cheat because they will essentially fuck whatever comes around and has a pulse, you know? These uh, stereotypes about bisexual women exist. And my ex-partner who was abusive would use these stereotypes in trying to control me. So he would, um, yeah, he would essentially demand to uh, see my messages in my phone because he was uh, convinced that I must be cheating on him. Or if I went out, he felt uh, entitled to text me like every second of the night because I must be flirting with somebody else. Um, And obviously that's not okay, but in that moment, um, it made me feel shameful about my bisexuality rather than feel angry with him. I feel like it, it makes sense that there's such a, a sense of community within the queer community and such a sense of kind of needing to be, to have solidarity with the rest of us. That I also felt when I started to share my story, um, scared that people would uh, disown me and I wouldn't be able to exist within the community anymore. And I, I've met people who've said that after they experienced assault, they removed themselves from the community because they didn't feel safe in it. 
Jeffrey, what was your expectation and what was the response that you got from, mm. from the community? My expectations were very different um, throughout the years because when I was younger, around the age of 16, um, coming out was still a thing. Um, I found that scary. I was bullied in school, so being coming out as gay is then the worst thing that, that you can do. <laughs> it adds to the shame as well. Yeah, for me, being gay and, uh, and then later being a victim of abuse, I kind of separate the two. Mm -hmm. Because I really, like, I know, and I also, like, I, I want to stand for that, like, 100%, like, it can happen to everybody. You don't have to be gay or bisexual or, you know, um, transgender to be abused. No, my mom can also be abused. <laughs> so, and she's not gay. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I really want to separate that. But you're right. When I was younger, it played a part. They like my abusers were also trying to frame me into stereotypical thinking. Um, also, the the hypersexuality thing was a, was a thing in my case, and also the thing with the phone is very like I kind of really? like yeah I really recognize that uh, they they want to put like power over you right. But yeah, my expectations um, later were kind of shaped by media because um, Me Too was becoming a big thing and um, I only saw women coming out with their stories and also um, a lot of like uh, celebrities. But not so much the, yeah, it could have been my, my neighbor, a boy uh, or, or myself. Like I'd, I never heard about that. And um, that made me feel kind of scared. Um, like would people even be interested and would they even like uh, truly um, believe me because I'm a man, uh, I like identify as a man, and um, for all I knew is that men were, <laughs> yeah, they they were doing this to women. So um, yeah, I found that a bit tricky. And also, I remember also, I think around the age of eighteen, that um, I had a conversation with my mother. Well, like, yeah, you know, um, one of our somebody in our family is very. Um, uh, I would say, like, not shy. He he never expresses as a uh, extrovert. Mm -hmm. And we were just discussing that and what could, like, be behind that and stuff. And I then remembered that my mom was like, yeah, maybe something happened to him when he was younger and maybe he didn't open up about that yet. And to me, that was, like, uh, a mirror because I knew I had something that I was not telling her. And then also, later, there was also uh, this news message about uh, a study that was done and that they were stating that people who were uh, abused would become an abuser when they were older. And that really lingered in my mind. Like It, it went up and down, back and forth, and it, it has seen every corner of my brain because no way that I will ever do this, what happened to me, to another person. Like, never, ever. Like, but that idea of like the society thinking in that, in that manner, that really hit me like, I should not be talking about this because then I will be framing myself in every wrong way that I can possibly do. And then that's kind of like, I try to deal with that and try to step over that because I know I'll never do that. So <laughs> I can talk about this and, and claim that I'm a victim. But yeah, I found things a bit difficult um, because of the society, uh, stereotypical thinking. I guess that the topic of masculinity also fits into this. You already said that you didn't see yourself as a victim of sexual violence because in your perception it was women as a as a victim and men as a perpetrator i knew that i was a victim right uh, of something and later when i told my parents and i went to the police and they told me this was abuse 
I mean, I know I'm abused. So because objectively it yes. was abuse, yeah. But it's the way that society is talking about it, and the yeah the way that they think kind of put pressure on my shoulders. It answers the question from how I thought things uh, could go, what I was afraid of. But I also knew that when I would be opening up, probably there w would be people that would be supporting me. And the reality is that that kind of like overruled everything. There are barely no negative comments. Um, or maybe not when I'm around <laughs> and not in my social media. <laughs> and I'm really thankful for that. But yeah, I expected... I expected things to be a bit more complicated. Um, and maybe it's because the stigma is kind of like pricking. The taboo is, yeah, we're talking about this. Like the fact that you are hosting a podcast about this that people can listen to, I think is amazing. I've also been struck the number of guys in particular that have come forward this year. I mean, in addition to Jeffrey, there's also uh, Kun Kardashian and, and actually a few others and also Harun Ali covers sexual violence within his new book, and I'm I'm really heartwarmed by the progress that seems to be making that we seem to be making and that society is is making that people now guys are able to to come forward and 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 share really what happened with them. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think what you touched on is super interesting in the way that um, people say that victims become perpetrators. Yeah. Because it works so stigmatizing. And I know there's a truth to it, right? Like a lot of... I always say this and it, and it sounds like I'm making excuses for abuse and I will never do that. But happy and like, you know, healthy people don't go abusing others. Abuse always has a source. And again, that's never to excuse anything. But a lot of people that abuse people have been abused or have been through, you know, uh, very difficult life journeys. Um, but then to put this out there s without any nuance will yeah, make it, right? will make yeah. victims feel like oh my god I'm gonna become like the person that did this to me and that's so re-traumatizing. Um, so it's it's difficult to find like a nuanced um, way to talk about this because um, I do think I mean the person who abused me was very much a liar <laughs> so i still to this day don't know like what which things he told me were true and which weren't but he has also uh, on occasions opened up to me about childhood abuse um so i've actually seen firsthand that you know uh, unresolved trauma and carrying all that uh, weight onto your shoulders and also a lot of shame um what that can do to somebody and what that can make of somebody so yeah i really resonate with this story can I say something, add something to that? Like, for me, it's uh, the perfect contrast to how I like to believe that my situation was. Because I don't know if my, uh, like, the guys who did this to me, whether they were hurt in the past or not. And um, I will never know, and I don't have to. But from from what happened, um, the first moment, um, I wasn't that bad. Uh, that should have should not have happened at all. But that was a situation, and when I woke up, uh, one of them was touching me. And by doing that, I, I, I see that he put me in the position of being a gatekeeper. You know, I could have said, I could have said something at that point, because was, that was when he was knocking on that door, do you want this or not? And I just, I kind of like, yeah, I, I froze. I, I couldn't talk. They don't know what was happening. My whole body reacted. And, because I didn't say no, all the other actions that were coming after that 
were kind of, yeah, I, I, I didn't dare to say no anymore because I already let them in. <laughs> this freezing <laughs> that you're talking sounds, about, yeah. this freezing that you're talking about, it affects, I think, a third of sexual assaults. People freeze inside. And I, I feel like this is not, you know, publicized enough that people do freeze. And, and there's a lot of blame that comes from, or self-blame that comes from f the feeling of not having acted or not having done something. From my experience, I was quite, uh, I fawned over this guy because I woke up and he was uh, fucking me without a condom. He became very aggressive. And in that moment, I felt like, okay, what do, what can I do to just keep this situation safe? Because right now I'm awake and I know what's happening. I'm talking to him. He's aggressive, but I don't want him to become physically aggressive. So I stayed there for several hours waiting for him to be calm enough that I felt like I could leave. And these responses, I think, can also uh, add a lot of shame. Um, Tessa, did you ever blame yourself? And how did you overcome that? Yeah, I mean, sexual violence in a relationship is always different from the script that is told about sexual violence, right? So um, that really... Um, yeah, stimulates self-blame because um, I was actually also in, in like a fawning position um, because someone who has, has been had been violent to me before was living in my house, right? So sexual advances uh, didn't feel like uh, a level playing field. I didn't feel like there was space for me to say no and yeah, to have him honor that no. Um, I felt like saying no would put me in a position of probably more violence than if I were to just go along with also violence right so um no i, I definitely um yeah definitely uh, feel the same way about these situations and i've blamed myself for a very long time about the specifically the sexual violence because i felt like yeah i was already quite feminist i guess and i guess i was super aware of like sexual violence can happen in relationships and it doesn't make make it okay and um so then to still be the person that allows that quote-unquote uh, was very difficult uh, to come to terms with yeah i can understand that you maybe felt like you didn't have much freedom or much choice in that situation to yeah to have your own agency i guess do you think that when it comes to resolving traumas in general and specifically with regards to sexual trauma that the community is uh is an easy place to do that or or is it a, is it that there has not been um, perhaps the visibility and exposure around this topic that helps people to come forward. Because I, I th what I'm hearing from Jeffrey, for instance, is when people are coming forward, now it's becoming easier and easier. Um, but I'm also aware that we haven't traditionally had um, a focus on sexual violence and sexual, uh, of course, sexual health we have with HIV, for instance, as, as gay, bisexual men. Uh, but never really on consent. And it looks very different, consent within the community, to how it looks within heteronormative uh, spaces. Yeah, definitely. I mean, even the topic of, of rape, like the phenomenon, what we understand to be rape, you know, when you think of lesbian sex and sexual assault within a lesbian or, or bisexual context, um, you know, lesbian sex often isn't even seen as sex by um, outsiders, <laughs> quote-unquote. So it makes it all the much more difficult to also classify it as rape. So yeah, that makes it really difficult. And I, I guess 
even within lesbian and, and women loving women communities some people are see ourselves as like <laughs> soft and sweet and perfect you know <laughs> as if uh women cannot also be abusive um so that makes it really difficult to talk about in in a women loving women um environment i would say mm-hmm. and between men what would you say jeffrey what would you say tom i would say that and there's a lot of research on this that um yeah violence is used often between gay bisexual men as kind of an acceptable way of enacting masculinity this is what uh research is saying so there is of course even within the queer community a sense of masculinity and you look mm-hmm. at like the pressure that we put upon each other sometimes to behave in certain ways like intercommunity gay minority stress um the the pressure to look in a certain way and what strikes me is we always say is how much of a diverse community we have and it is in many ways but actually in 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 a lot of ways it's very homogenized yeah. you know the way that we I think that is because of the stories that we're telling towards each other like, right um, and the stories are not real actually or they I, I yeah I think so because um when I was grow- growing up um you know my first idea of being gay was what my bu- like the, the children who were bullying me kind of that was the image mm-hmm. that I got for, from being gay so I would be very <laughs> sissy, you know, with the hand, <laughs> with the hand sign, and um, yeah, not a man at all, and uh, couldn't play sports and whatsoever. Well, proved them wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. But then later, uh, when you get older, you know, um, there's pornography, of course. Um, there's always always this power uh, power play is a thing, right? And I think that's the same for for straight relationships. But in the gay community, I think that, yeah, Tom of Finland, for example, you know, the very masculine men uh, with hair or dressed as a, as a police. Um, and then you have the other, uh, <laughs> you know, the more feminine gays, yep. uh, the twinks, I would say, <laughs> um, you know, and then they come together, they have sex and that's gay sex. But no, <laughs> just like two, two women can have sex and uh, that is sex <laughs> to very soft small gay men can also have sex and also uh, can mix in every manner. Um, but yeah, when I was growing up, I only saw yeah, one side of that. Again, I didn't read a book, even though I was searching for it because I wanted to understand my situation. I was really actively looking for questions on Google like, um, can, uh, can you have, as a 16-year-old man, can you have sex with somebody who is 30 and somebody else who is his partner? Like Things like that. And there were no answers on the internet. And now we live in 2023 or 2024. Like going forward, uh, there are so many other stories out there. Uh, We now know, like, we all know transgender persons in our lives. Like, we all know at least one, like, for sure. That, That wasn't the case when we were a bit younger, right? And I think that is shifting and that's a good thing. Again, I'm really happy that this podcast is there. <laughs> I've said it twice now, but it's great. <laughs> Actually, when you mentioned uh, Tom of Finland, it reminded me I wrote about Tom of Finland uh, in the Geekrand. Really? Uh, yeah. Well, there was a um, there was an article or a, a cartoon that he made called Postal Rape, and I used this as a reference point, and I said, okay, we have always fetishized within the community yeah. rape because look, in the seventies, he published this. I got so much uh, stick, like so many problems for uh, touching the idol of uh, so <laughs> many older men. Well, yeah, let me put some really nuance here then. Like, I don't think that neither you or I 
we find Tom of Finland and that kind of like fetishized ID a bad thing. But it comes to the other stereotypical thinking that comes after it when you only see that picture and nothing else. That's yeah. what we talk about, right? What 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 people were saying to me, and uh, by all means, I mean I'm all for kind of you know people being you know into erotica. This is totally cool, and there's a really strong cultural significance of Tom of Finland. But people were telling me, you know, Tom of Finland is all about consent, so you've misread it. And the the cartoon is that a postal a postal worker delivers a letter. He folds it up and they are angry that he's folded it up when they go to collect the letter and so they rape him there is no consent within the the cartoon and i i absolutely understand and respect the cultural significance of tom of finland but it was uh there is a cartoon about rape and mm. that needs to be discussed i think yeah. as well because we we you know we can often hide it yeah um i got really a lot of strange responses from that i guess that's like um an example of this like in community fear of like you right. know naming backlash, and blaming yeah. because we're because we know that the backlash we have amongst each other is going to be you know highlighted and and sized yeah. up by by outsiders and yeah. but that that's fear of backlash um there's some research that says that the fear of backlash is actually conditioning us to accept violence in all forms because it creates a double standard actually you know we we have one standard for homophobic, biphobic, transphobic harassment and one standard for sexual violence within the community and further afield. I mean, there is always uh, inequality between sexual violence, actually. But what we're doing when we are saying we're scared of a backlash is actually conditioning us that you know, violence is okay and we need to learn to accept it. Right, yeah. As if violence, you know, interpersonal violence or sexual violence within the, in the community is less... Uh, violence than you know right. outside um, exclusion yeah exactly and i think that when when you cannot talk about the violence that you experience because of that context uh it creates additional shame and that also then you know gets internalized and that is more likely than to be projected onto other people so yeah. you're again starting this cycle where hurt people are hurting people so i feel like there's really a need to be able to provide platforms for people to share their experiences and yeah and also for people to understand themselves right like and when that you are in a situation yeah. you need to be able to find a source somewhere that's that that can give you the answers or the the solutions that you need yeah and when that's lacking you yeah then you will end up and you will have to live with the situation and carry that until you get the answers that you that you missed earlier. What do you think is the role of survivors in changing perception of sexual violence in the community? Mm, that's a difficult one because when you say the role of survivors, it feels like I don't want to say it's like some uh, anybody's duty, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because it is obviously Indeed. super hard to, I guess, carry your trauma along into your work right. every day and make it so public as well. It's, right, it's really something that is for yeah that you have to think about. You know, yeah, for me. I feel super privileged in that I know that my parents and my family support me and my friends are 100% on my side. Uh, my abuser uh, lives in the UK, doesn't speak the language, so he can't read my book, um, you know, so so that, that really helps. Well. Uh, so I feel like I'm in a very privileged position to um, to play out that role and, mm. to, and to make sure that my story uh, serves a, a bigger uh, purpose, I guess. Mm -hmm. But I also wholeheartedly understand people who do not feel comfortable sharing their story or really just can't for their own safety 
Um, yeah. So, yeah, I feel like any survivor's role can be different, like within the bounds of what is safe for them. Yeah, yeah, I totally get what you're saying. A good friend of mine, like one of my best friends, he recently said, Jeffrey, it looks like you you feel like you have to do something with this topic, but actually you already did a lot by coming out with your story. Mm. So don't feel the pressure of, you know, writing all these extra things. And I was writing a whole dictionary about the topic, which I like, but it was like, take it, take it easy. Just give yourself some time and, and breathe and, you know, let other people come to you instead of you approaching all these things and really offering your, your service to, to do something. It's so easy to get burned out talking about either your own experience or just such a difficult topic in general. Mm. It's really... Uh, yeah, but it also gives me personally a lot of energy. Yeah. Because really for me, the world changed, like totally the opposite of a few years ago. Mm. Um, I really get a lot of energy uh, from talking about this or talking to, to somebody else who, yeah, who shares an experience. I don't know how you experience that, but the burning out thing for me, yes, it takes a lot of energy and it's overwhelming. Mm -hmm. My book is only there for three months, but yeah, Tesla is pub uh, publishing al already a bit longer. Yeah, for me, it is kind of like dual. Like on the one hand, I definitely feel energized, uh, especially in certain circumstances. So I, I um, go to like classrooms now and then to talk with kids nice. about like red flags and green flags in yes. relationships mm -hmm. and that really energizes me because i feel like that's where i'm making the difference this is the people i want to reach and this is the, the the people that need it because um also rutgers um report uh, stated that a lot of young people in the netherlands feel like violence against women is um is okay under certain circumstances so well, it's not yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> Uh, so when I talk to these young kids, I really feel like I'm making a difference. And it's really funny because I walk into this classroom, right? And it's like 15, 16 year old boys with their, with their, um, what's it called? Capuchon? Hoodie. With their hoodie on, like, you know, slouching over, super un uninterested. And I'm stressed out. And then I start talking about like violence and, and boundaries and consent. And then they eventually become really interested and like, uh, someone says something and they don't agree with it and then they mix in the conversation like these things really energize me but because I've been speaking about this for three years a little over three years now and I feel like I kind of put myself in this position of like a public speaker on this topic I get messages from people like detailing the abuse they face at every hour of the day yep. sometimes on like a Saturday night when I'm drinking a beer yep. with my friends and I get like this long ass dm about you, you know really gruesome abuse and that's really difficult for me because it is something that happened to me it's still triggering i'm not a uh a, a not a, a a social worker yeah you're not a professional in the right term. like you come yeah. from your own experience yeah so that's uh where i sometimes have to like um yeah put a boundary and i have this like standardized uh, message in my notes app saying like hey i can't help you at this moment but you can reach this chat box you can reach this helpline or whatever it's really good yeah. yeah but it is that that sometimes makes me feel like okay it's i can't be doing this forever <laughs> because yeah. it's at a certain point also from my own um journey and my own like healing process i guess i want to put a yeah put an end to the to the topic in my life for for a while in a sense, it shows how much of a good job you're doing that you've built trust that people 
yeah, yeah. You, you do trust you to come forwards and i also i receive the same you know i mm. of course if they go to men as well then it's different but I, i you know it's happened to me that i will be out drinking and somebody shares the story after i start talking about what i do mm. and yeah it, it, it's really important still to set boundaries i think when especially yeah. when you have a history of having your boundaries breached and then getting through the the whole journey of uh understanding that experience and then recovering your boundaries and i indeed i find it very empowering to know that there's a change happening and that i'm contributing to that but you have to really understand yourself and know you know when is enough yeah, yeah and also like for me personally um when i receive a message or an email i'm always um sometimes i'm not even reading them reading them at the moment that i receive them and when i do i always question myself is this the right moment to answer because right now like my book is there again for three months and since three months um and i i still reply to every every message that i get even if it's only to close the loop like you are with your automated reply if you're not responding yet mm-hmm. um you are helping the other person by finding another resource which right. is stimulating them and moving them in the right path so pathway navigation yeah yeah, yeah. i mean we're doing that together yeah yeah <laughs> So yeah. that's great, right? Yeah, I think this is the, I mean, moving people towards professional help is really, it's a really important bridge that we can provide actually in a very simple way yeah. um, to help people find the support that they need. And if they see that they can access you to be able to get that, of course, if your boundaries are, you know, and it's mm-hmm. not 2am on a Saturday morning yeah. and then yeah that's a a really important step because it also validates i feel the experience of that person you know often especially for gay bisexual men it's it might be the first time they've ever spoken about it and especially these late night messages it can really be you know somebody urgent urgent yeah Yeah, exactly as well and these are things that we also don't talk about within the community as well you know mental health and whatever Mm um but that's a really important step that people that we i feel that i can provide or that we can provide in a sense and build building these informal support structures amongst ourselves because yeah i think for the both of us tessel um we we got the validation also by coming out publicly about a story but let's be real like not everybody is able to write a book or should be writing a book about what happened to them right but you know just starting the conversation with somebody else or sending a message to somebody else who experienced something similar that's really it, it really helps yeah it, it makes you feel so relieved um yeah now i'm gonna come with my list of all the good things talking can do to you <laughs> i'm like pitching this everywhere <laughs> um, stop that google it <laughs> i'm i'm wondering whether uh, if we look at like me too for instance and all of these social movements that have happened from grassroots through sharing of stories ha- to what extent within the community shared sharing of stories and experience and whether that is you know public sharing or just kind of talking with friends to what extent that's really uh, vital for a norm change within our community super vital i mean uh there's such a long way to go right like me too we've already touched upon it only centers women Mm. but it also only centers celebrities and white women and rich women um and heterosexual women mostly um so there's still so many stories untold um and um there's so many more (laughs) books that should be written um 
But yeah, I feel like it does set a precedent what we're doing now. Um, and I feel like there is a, a switch coming up and there is more talk about abuse and safety and consent in the community, but there's still such a long way to go. But I really hope that, um, yeah, sharing stories, but also sharing resources, um, maybe even having discussions about what does consent mean and are there gray areas, that that really helps and that it really, yeah, it is really vital. When you say that, um, reminds me of something we said before earlier in this episode. <laughs> oh, look at me. I'm trying to become a host now. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but... Um, when I when I said that um, our our stories are kind of like uh, contrastful in the sense that you feel like your betrayer is that a correct perpetrator perpetrator he was hurt in his past and I don't know that from from the guys who abused me so what I meant by saying that is that I think that abuse or like uh, going over somebody else's boundaries can happen to everybody as well right like, mm-hmm. and you don't have to mean you don't have to uh, you know, want to do harm to somebody else, it can happen and you can say, you can apologize for it, but there needs to be open communication. Exactly. Um, every I time when you say consent, this is what I'm th- thinking about. Like, do I ever make a mistake in this field? Yeah. What would I do if I make a mistake? Or what should the other person know that he or she can do or say? Yeah, exactly. I, I really feel that it's also the role of men in this journey where we're you know try to raise awareness around male victimhood but i think every man needs to stand up and say at some point you know i've pushed somebody's boundaries without realizing it uh and you know made somebody feel uncomfortable to what extent that is violent is uh nuanced i think but especially within the community where uh well in general actually yeah men and women yeah yeah, yeah. But I, I think I feel like um, we have such a heteronormative sexual education system. You know, people leave school, they know about how to avoid a pregnancy, how to use a condom, but they don't, for our community, know how to navigate dark rooms or know what it's like to go into a gay bar or know, you know, a lot of uh, actually very basic things that if they're straight, they've learned. But I've been told by uh, healthcare workers in the Netherlands, you know, like I have the ex- I have the uh, feeling that almost everybody's first time is a bad first time, mm. um, and I, I think it's really crucial that we start to empower people around the topic of consent in a in better than we have been doing. Yeah, yeah absolutely, and also consent in the sense of like, have I ever crossed a boundary? Like uh, within heterosexual sex, males are usually perpetrators, and right. and women are usually victims, but. Um, womanhood does not equal victimhood obviously and and masculinity does not equal being a perpetrator so it's also this dynamic within lesbian sex like yes there can be sexual violence and it's not like the dominant one is always like the perpetrator you know it's it's a lot more complex than the than the talk about consent that we're used to within the heterosexual context um and also we talk about consent as in no means no but we never talk about consent as in it might feel really uncomfortable if someone says no. It might really hurt your your confidence. Uh, you might be really sad. Like, what do you do? How do you cope with these feelings? That's also a really valuable discussion that is, in my opinion, very um, helpful in, in, the, in the fight against sexual violence. It's that position of being the gatekeeper again. Like, imagine you're, you're on a first date with somebody. Um, let's just imagine a man and a woman going on a date, sitting on a couch. The guy is approaching 
the women or the girl um, comes closer and she is just, you know, still still doubting, like, should I kiss him or not? Does he want it? He is also thinking, shall I kiss her or not? I think she wants it because she's not moving away. Okay, comes closer, comes closer. Maybe he touches her shoulder. That That's okay. So probably I can kiss her now. And then he kisses her. Well, maybe at that point she is still not even sure about whether she wants it or not. But then for for him, that's difficult because he is then already kind of over the uh, over the boundary mm-hmm. and for her she's already she already didn't say no mm-hmm. and now it's one big mess in her mind because what to do next and that's only with kissing or you know touching somebody but when it comes to sex or even when it becomes when there is violence involved you know it becomes much more complicated mm-hmm. but when you like when you only start to question yourself about that simple situation and you get the answers or you know some solutions for that you can start to kind of train <laughs> for other scenarios. That's one thing that we've tried to do also within the trainings that we offer at men as well. We have the Queer Landscapes training that was developed um, by uh, Michael O.D., who's uh, the National Chemsex Coordinator at the Terence Higgins Trust. And we really try and train people uh, about what it's like to go into these different spaces, um, you know, because in dark rooms, saunas, People are not speaking. It's all it's all physical touching. And if you're not prepared for that, if you walk in at 18 years old to a darkroom and you don't know that there is no verbal consent given and it's all, you know, very different type of consent, then you're going to e- yeah. easily freeze and, and yeah. get yourself into yeah. trouble. So it's so important to equip people with the tools that they need to navigate these experiences safely, I think. Yeah. And then also empower them to where they feel uncomfortable uh, take agency and understand you know you have agency in that position of course with freezing and fawning it's very difficult but if you can guide people before these events and and try to help them to understand that there's a way out if they yeah. need a way out yeah yeah then it becomes education. easier to access Indeed. that way out yeah. yeah and i think that's what you're trying to to teach these children on school right like with red flag green flag yeah that's already like the basic of it that that's great like yeah. it, there is no other way than education on in an early age, I think, in order to get a new generation in which this problem is, yeah, kind of like, I wouldn't say solved, because I don't think it will ever disappear, but at least a generation that's fully aware of it and that knows a lot of scenarios that can happen to them and how they can react to it. Um, so yeah, good job. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think that we need going forwards to, yeah, to achieve that change reverse education (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh, for sure that um. I think still within the community it it comes down to education as well because um, I feel like there are um, yeah many people who don't even see it as a problem uh, you know uh, because there's such a heterosexual narrative shaped around sexual violence that maybe queer sexual violence isn't even um something that they really can imagine. Um, And also, uh, for anyone, regardless of sexuality, I feel like uh, establishing boundaries is is also really difficult, you know, Um, because you're also thinking of what what is expected of me, what does the other person feel, how do I Uh, maybe hurt someone. And I think as well as queer people, we are trained to, in a sense, or conditioned to 
not have those boundaries or to accept mm. much higher levels of violence that we would than we would normally accept because yeah. that is intrinsically part of our journey. Yeah, and also there's this narrative around uh, coming out. At least there was for me of like being maybe unlovable or or having it much harder in finding a stable relationship because you're yeah. queer, right? So then when you feel like if someone is giving you love and attention that you must be so lucky, even if that person doesn't listen to you and you right. say no. Yeah. Um, at, at least for me in my abuse story, that was definitely very much uh, prevalent. And he would also make sh- sure that I knew that I was like difficult to love and that I was not... Um, you know, feminine enough or not well, not straight enough, obviously. Mm. Um, so I guess that also makes it that much harder for people to realize I don't deserve this and I deserve love that is safe and that is, you know, right. b- yeah, by my boundaries and yeah. Yeah, my brain is just like going in so many directions when we talk about this topic. There's so much that we can say, like like so much that people need to understand or know. But I'm also happy that we're talking about the positive things that people need to hear. People need to also understand that they are, uh, you know, perfectly capable of finding a nice love partner that they can spend their life with. Yes. Because we're with so many, like there are so many bisexual peop- persons, so many gay men, so many women who like other women. Like we're not alone. And um, if we just also tell each other that we that we belong, that, uh, that also helps. Um, it's the same as the representation in... The abuse of stories mm-hmm. and getting to know the scenarios. Mm-hmm. There's no like blueprint for responding to people's uh, stories, but what would you suggest if anyone's listening uh, to somebody to respond to somebody if they if their friend was to share something? Um, well, first of all, I think validation is really important, but I really want to add something, and that is um, when people don't share their story, but if you do suspect something. Um, well my expertise is is, uh, abusive relationships obviously Um, some things that are really important is to not tell somebody you have to leave them you have to leave her, you have to leave him because um, well this can be very dangerous Um, usually breakups are the most um, yeah most um, tense moments in an abusive relationship Uh, and abuse is is bound to escalate Um, but what you might rather say is is things like um if you ever want a place to stay you can uh, you can sleep at my place and uh, he won't know where you are or if you need me to i can arrange a prepaid phone for you anything uh, like that um so i wanted to put this out there because this is not really widespread known information yeah. but it can really save it's lives super yeah. important for sure i think it's similar to um, parents telling their kids, like, if somebody ever touches you, I will kill him or her. Yeah. If you say that to a child, the child will feel like, oh my God, there is so much pressure. And something is happening right now, and I already know what will happen when I tell other people. And then I'm responsible for yes. my parents killing somebody. Yeah. yeah. And then they go to jail, and, you know, it gets bigger and bigger. Yeah. Yeah. I got told that by my ex and then I realized it was time to leave. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's it's so true that we need to keep giving people as much agency as possible because these kind of violent experiences are so... Um, they strip so much your agency away. And I think it's really important what you're saying, Tessel, that you know to give people as much agency as possible and as much validation as possible. I think that's these are really important tips. 
I think it's also important to understand that you don't have to talk about it if you don't want to or when you're not ready. And the same goes for, you know, uh, make, making a report at the police. A, Absolutely. A, a police report, for example, also comes with other, um, yeah, with other uh, complicated <laughs> uh, things. Because in most situations, um, filing a report seems to be the solution. Uh, it seems to happen that the, f the, the abuser gets his yeah, punishment. Uh, <laughs> but it doesn't have to happen always. Like for some, uh, in some situations, only, uh, you know, a good conversation can solve a lot of things. For some uh, victims, talking to the abuser can also help in recovering. One thing that we've tried to do actually at Men as well is to, uh, of course, in the police in the Netherlands, you have two options when you're making a report. You yeah. have the melding, uh, which is just a, a, a statement that doesn't lead to conviction. And mm -hmm. then you have the aangifte. And we've, uh, this, of course, is a huge barrier for people when they come forward. They think they're going to start a whole criminal investigation. Yeah. The perpetrator is going to be questioned. And actually, there is a really beneficial part of the Meldinger in the Netherlands, which means, which allows you to register your experience. It provides data. So I think that um, what, what men as well likes to do is to really try and lower the barriers. And you can make a melding online. You can make a melding through Rosenblau, through the Pink and Blue network of LGBT officers. Uh, and th this is something that, you know, there are, there are often options when you, th you know, you might feel that something is really difficult, to, a step is really difficult. Uh, and it's important to understand, of course, and it's very difficult after sexual trauma to understand what are the next steps. Yeah, but let's be real, like, it's not the responsibility of a victim uh, to think about what should happen to, you know, in how the uh, investigation should happen, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. No, the only thing a victim should be focusing about is him or herself. Right. And his or her care, uh, health and mental health. Like, yeah. That's, that's the thing. Um, leave it to the, to the police when you really, really want to or where something really um, is also... Uh, still happening, for example, or when, when a big change needs to happen, or yeah, when somebody killed somebody, of course, like make a make a report immediately. But yeah. sometimes you just need to give it a little bit more, little bit time to really right. come to a good solution for yourself that you feel safe with and also happy with. I say this because after I was raped, I didn't know in the Netherlands that I had two options. I thought, okay, if I go to the police, and I actually cycled past the police station on the way back from his house. And I, I, it took me five weeks to contact the police because I thought oh, there's going to be a huge criminal investigation if this happens. That was not the case at all. When I finally went forward, uh, it was not the best experience, uh, to be honest. But what was reassuring for me was that there was a way of registering this experience without having any direct repercussions. So I absolutely, when, with regards to the victim's responsibility, it's yourself. That's the first yeah. responsibility you have. But I think it's really important to get this information out there so that sure. people as yeah. victims know what the options are. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I feel you. I uh, uh, When I was abused, I chose to not uh, go to the police at all. Um, because, well, partly because I've heard really horrific stories of, of um, women who came forward and, you know, were victim blamed or just simply sent away. But also because... Um, over the weeks that we broke up, I was very angry and very hurt, but also felt really bad for him or something. 
Mm. Um, and I felt like he needed help and not punishment. Um, but I've actually been blamed for that quite a bit by other victims or like victim advocates for saying like, well, he might go and do this to the next woman and then you're responsible for this. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> and it's so important that victims realize that um, there is nobody to blame for the abuse but the abuser. Um, and it's also never your fault for how somebody yeah, continues to make choices in their life. Um, and important, I think, that dependent, of course, on ability to be able to do that. But the victims uh, stand by each other, you know, mm. and support each other. Oh, yes. And yeah. when when I have had people disagree with me, and that's perfectly fine because I'm not here to decide what, you know, what consent in the queer community looks like that's a discussion right. that i want to have and gradually you know we'll find something and it's going to look different to the way i imagine it because mm -hmm. i'm not everyone and i mm -hmm. it needs to be a community discussion yeah. right. um but it's important to to listen to each other and to respect each other's journeys and experiences without blaming each other for things and uh you know i'm getting angry because if if we're going to be angry we should be angry at the person that did it not to somebody else who's experienced something right. yeah. i think we had a really nice chat yeah thanks for the invites thank you so much for joining and thank you for your tips for your, for your input for yeah all of your stories and thank you for sharing uh yeah and being vulnerable thank, thank you. you for hosting yeah, thank you for having us <laughs> Thanks. The Maker District Podcast. Podcast.